Hey guys, it's Katie and wanted to just say up top that by the time you're listening to this, we may know way more. We probably won't know who wins the election or we may know who wins the election, but there will be some kind of legal attempts to disqualify it. We are taping Thursday afternoon. So obviously we will address whatever developments arise on the show next week. All right, welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Halper. And uh, we still don't have a... Well, we know. We, we kind of know what's going to happen, but don't, not really. As we're taping this, we still don't really it's have thir- a president. Yeah, it's Thursday. And when it's you Thursday, listen to this... Probably this will be over by January. Yeah, right. Just to like summarize, it's very. It's probably going to be Biden, right? He's going to eke it out, as we say. Um, oh, probably. But Trump is also going to try to block it, uh, appeal it, do whatever he can, as he himself laid out. We can look at that video, actually. It's kind of funny, his game look, plan. There's like nine different scenarios. Most of them favor Biden. But yeah. the one that is most likely to me is that one of Nevada or Arizona flips back to Trump or flips to Trump, and then it ends up being Pennsylvania that carries it for Biden. Yeah, that's the one that makes most sense to me. Right. Um, but uh, who knows? Tuesday night, I get the sense you thought that Trump was going to win, right? You I were did. Kind of I, ab- I absolutely did because um, Pennsylvania. Because I just believe the mar the the, mar- the way the the numbers looked at the time. Right. Looked like there was no way that um, that Biden could make up that many votes in that many states Um, but it turned out you know i think the the big indication is when i woke up in the morning and i saw wisconsin had flipped basically uh like in 10 seconds and um but you know but by that same logic though the same the same logic that makes you think that it makes you understand why you know wisconsin and wisconsin michigan could flip is the same logic that makes you think that that Arizona uh, could flip, right? And which is on the sort of on route to happening at the moment. So, right. who knows? This is going to end up in the courts. It's going right. to be ugly, I think. Yeah. So, but the big the good news is there's no violence yet. So that's yeah, it. that's true. Um, should we get to the four basic food groups? Yeah. Let's do, just first, do you want to do you want to acknowledge that something's different about me? Your glasses? Yeah. First uh, time. You, is this is this like a show. is this like a fashion thing? No, they're not fake. They're real. They're reading uh, glasses. They're reading glasses. I and think I'm not sure what they are. There's something that I can see more clearly. Glasses. Okay. Yeah. Normally, like a glasses type yeah. function. Yeah. 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 You look good. It's a, thanks. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, are you are you happy with the results or? I mean, actually, I have to admit. Well, ha- ha- if it's a Republican Senate. And uh, Biden presidency, that really sucks, because if it had been a Democratic Senate, we could have like Biden would have no excuse for not pushing certain things. Now he will have an excuse or to be charitable, which I don't want to be. But if you're a Biden fan, you'd say, well, he won't be able to. I mean, he won't be able to, but he wouldn't have done it anyway, or he would have resisted as much as possible. That's what I'd say. And now he doesn't have that. He won't be cornered, which sucks. Um, I am glad I have to say, I got to say this controversial take. I'm glad. If he wins, I'll be glad that he didn't 
have a landslide because I don't want, I think the Dems need to like reconcile. Well, I mean, okay, ah. that's a bit counterfactual, but like him, okay, had he won in a landslide, I think it would have been easy to present that as a major referendum on his ideas as opposed to in large part a referendum on Trump being president and co with with covid. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, well they're going to they're going to take this as a validation of every st stupid fucking right, idea no they've had for the last 4 right, years. Right. Which so is, we which have to push back wrong. on that no matter what. But we but dude, that won't help. No, but at least we'll be speaking truth to power and uh corruption we'll be speaking truth just truth yeah, yeah. no the power that's sad we won't really oh, but they speaking. won't hear us you're saying yeah, yeah we will be speaking speaking truth about power yeah it'll be speaking truth just, about a non-listening power yeah exactly yeah, not and non-listening not acknowledging power so let's get to the four, four four food groups uh we have a lot to talk about obviously hope you guys are hungry <laughs> yeah exactly uh so I mean, it's not really Democrats. I'm, I'm going to bring this up. It's a non-election related thing, but I just felt like it had to be brought up because it just didn't make the news, basically, which was the declassification of a piece of the Mueller investigation, which um, had some pretty significant um, headlines in it. Uh, the, the main one being basically that they never had any evidence of a conspiracy uh, involving WikiLeaks. So, so the Mueller report says, uh, with respect to WikiLeaks and Assange, this office determined the admissible evidence to be insufficient on both the agreement and knowledge prongs. Although a conspiracy is often inferred from the circumstances, the lack of visibility into the contents of these communications uh, would hinder the office's ability to prove that WikiLeaks was aware of and intended to join the criminal venture comprised of the GRU hackers. Similar problems of proof existed as to knowledge and absent sufficient evidence of such knowledge, the government could not prove that WikiLeaks or Assange joined an ongoing hacking conspiracy uh, intended to further or facilitate additional computer intrusions. And they, then they went and they, they basically repeated the process when they talked about Roger Stone and they said Stone's actions would thus be consistent with, among other things, a belief that he was aiding in the dissemination of the fruits of an already completed hacking uh, operation perpetrated by a third party. And uh, just so that people understand what, what, what all this means, it just means that Mueller investigated all this stuff and did not find any evidence that uh, either WikiLeaks had any kind of foreknowledge of the hacking or that Stone had any kind of foreknowledge of anything uh, uh, past the point, uh, you know, when the hacking was actually going on. So this is like fundamental pillars of the entire Russiagate conspiracy just disappearing because it, all of that was based on the, the Democratic National Committee's suit was based on the idea that all of these people knew what the, the other was were doing. And Mueller is basically saying that neither the Trump campaign nor WikiLeaks, there's no evidence that they had any knowledge that, uh, or uh, part in the hacking. Right. I mean, in a way, doesn't this relate to the election in that, like, 
the Dems leaned on this so much that they tried to not have to present any actual policy to get people out to vote? Well, yes. Related, yeah. I mean, this is related to, and we, I could have picked Robbie Mook for this space too, because, you know, their entire argument, not only against, against specifically Bernie Sanders, um, but some other people as well as, oh, we're so worried about the down ballot uh, result of, you know, uh, putting somebody who's a quote unquote democratic socialist on the ballot or putting Medicare for all, God forbid, on the ballot, right? You know, we can't risk what that will do in, in you know, in conservative America. And so, you know, yes, they, they leaned, instead of campaigning on basically anything that had anything to do with anything, they leaned into this all like 19 different varieties of horseshit political schemes to try to oust Trump, each one, in my opinion, dumber than the next. Um, and and what did it end up doing? Like, regardless of who wins the election, we've seen that they hurt themselves with basically every category of voter, except, ironically, white guys. Right. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, there's so much to be frustrated about with all of this, but the that, that little story about the, the declassification of the Mueller thing, is so frustrating because it, it kept alive, it kept th this, that little portion of the conspiracy theory kept um, this story alive for years. And, and it, there was no acknowledgement of it whatsoever when it came out, it didn't make it, it didn't make any, any news stories at all. So, so here we're, we're talking about it. And, and, and before anybody says anything, there is a section in there that talks about how there were, there were conversations between the alleged GRU hackers and WikiLeaks affiliated individuals that were encrypted and therefore they, they, they couldn't uh, make an offer of proof. But I don't know what uh, WikiLeaks affiliated individuals means. Uh, and we don't know exactly w what any of that was. They right. clearly didn't have anything that was a concrete indication of anything or else they would have put it in there. Right. Uh, what do you have for Republicans suck? All right. So um, for Republicans suck, I mean, we have a lot for Republicans suck. We have a lot of uh, material. And I want to start off with Trump's uh, speech, not to be too obvious, but I think it's good to, to provide the context. Uh, Dan, can we look at the third link? This was from Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, technically. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. <laughs> this is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at 4 o'clock in the morning and add them to the list, okay? So a couple of things. One thing is that he, his denture no, nasal breathing is strong in this. Did you hear that? I mean, like, you know, look, dude is amped. I know, yeah. It's not always there as loudly as 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 it was, you know. Probably, it's kind of retro. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that it, that that that's dependent on let's just call them factors. Okay, factors, yeah. Listen, factors. That's robotic. Right, right. So uh, the nice thing about Trump there is that he really lays it out. You know what I mean? He lays out his uh, kind of predictable uh, plan of action. Um, I don't know if he knows that, like, you don't just go to the Supreme Court. Like, there's a couple of things on the way to that. 
right, in terms yes. of courts. That may be a rude awakening for him. Yeah, they might have wanted to explain that to him when he got yeah, to exactly, the presidency. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, giving him some flashcards or whatever. Right. Um, so, uh, but, and then I wanted to play the uh, the second link, Dan, please. <laughs> I mean, that's just a great juxtaposition. I wonder what the determining factor is there. What were those? That was what? Arizona? Was it Arizona and Michigan? Arizona and Michigan, yeah. So, Matt, guess which state they were saying count all votes and which one they were saying stop the count? Well, yeah, I think it's not that hard to guess. Yeah. Clearly, they don't want votes counted in Michigan. They do want votes counted in Arizona. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Must be a geographical thing. Yeah. Must be a climate thing, temperature I'm, thing. I'm going to be that guy, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I am. I don't understand Arizona. Like, you know, basically at multiple times during this process, they were just like, yeah, we're going to um, just take a break until five o'clock the next day. And then and then, and then the day after the election, they were like, yeah, we're, we're not going to have any further information until tomorrow morning. So what were they doing? You know, they they they, they had one update at one point that showed Trump cutting the lead, uh, Biden's lead there to like 96,000 votes from 200,000. And then they had a they had a next update that showed it down uh, another 30,000 votes or, sh- or, or so um, with many outstanding. Uh, and then they just took a break and decided to, you know, to stop until the next day. So I some of that stuff, maybe um, I just don't understand because I don't cover these, you know, uh, electoral proceedings often enough. But disparity between how different states handled some of these things was very strange to me. I, I don't really understand it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but that has nothing to do with who actually won or what or how right. the candidate, the, the, the you know, the, the campaigns are behaving about all this. It's right. It's more that I just don't I don't understand why we do X in one state and Y in another state. You know? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, in terms of like, for instance, like mail-in votes and stuff. Uh, well, why like, did Florida have a system for that, that that made sense and other states didn't? I think that, well, they ruled on it. I think it's state by state instead of, it should be, it's so obvious it should be a federal thing. Like, of course it should be uh, mail by date. Yeah. I, I mean, especially in a pandemic. Like, they should have just said that they were going to announce it next Tuesday. Instead of the, the Tuesday of the election, yeah. And then, uh, Dan, sorry, can we just see the third tweet? Okay, so um, here we have uh, Scott McFarlane announcing that in court hearing 150,000 ballots delivered yesterday by U.S. Postal Service, uh, these include large numbers of ballots put in mail Sunday, including Atlanta. And so Lawboy Esquire, who's a great account to follow on Twitter, these won't be counted under Georgia law. Yeah. What happened with those votes? They're not going to be counted. But why? What happened? Because I guess that's, that's Georgia's Georgia's law, like the thing you were just talking about, how different states have different laws. If 150,000 ballots that were sent on Sunday don't yeah. get counted, like, then, then that's, that's pretty messed up. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, like, most of them are in Atlanta, which will, of course, I think pretty safe to say, skew lean uh biden Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah 
make isn't that it's so absurd that during especially during a pandemic that like if you're that if it doesn't arrive as opposed to if it, do, it isn't postmarked again it just it just frustrates me that there isn't a a uniform system yeah of course this. yeah so you know those votes would go through and in Pennsylvania, but they wouldn't go through in Georgia, like. Right, because Pennsylvania has already done it that way. And then they had a case in Wisconsin and they ruled that they can't count them after either. So I think it's in most states, they do count them, but it's not a federal thing, which it should be. I mean, the only other thing I would say is it, it has to be done in a way that everybody understands what the rule is. Like, you know, when you file your taxes, if they told you that it had to arrive by April 15th, I think people would <laughs> would have very different uh, habits in terms of get, getting their taxes out. Um, and everybody knows what the rules are, right? I don't think people know about these things. Right. So that's messed up. I mean, isn't that but, messed up? Yeah. You know, I think a primary consequence, and we can talk about this with our guests today, but a primary consequence of this election is that people, not only in the United States but around the world, are, are going to lose confidence in the validity of our elections, I think. It's about time. Yeah, it's about time. So it's nice. It's just it's all it's like it was already there, but now it's all hanging out like a hanging Chad. Like it's hanging out like a Chad, like a Chad. Uh, all right. Let's just quickly go through our usual. Uh, isn't that terrible? Isn't that weird? The story is both weird and terrible. But here's the headline. After fiance is found dead, man researches time travel to, quote, correct a horrible mistake. <laughs> you know what? That's good. That's showing um, remorse. That's always important. it does show yeah. remorse. I hope they use that at sentencing. Remorse, yeah. So uh, I'll just read the, the lead here. Uh, a Russian bride to be was found dead uh, 5,500 miles from home. Investigators would soon learn Anna Repkina uh, was um, unwittingly caught in a love triangle and that her fiancé frantically researched time travel after her death, writing to strangers on WhatsApp, quote, uh, best friend made a mistake. <laughs> I want to go back to keep from losing the woman that should be my wife. Uh, this is a 48-hour story. Uh, if we could do, just go down a little bit. Basically, like, meets woman, complications, love triangle, blah, blah, blah. When she issues an ultimatum and she ends up dead. And, okay, in the days after uh, Repkina's death, uh, Hargrove exhibited some rather peculiar behavior. He went on a bizarre internet deep dive. Quote, he is researching time travel, said Detective Chris Dale. He saves screenshots of web pages that show you how to do a particular spell to travel back in time. And we also see communication through WhatsApp in which he is... Uh, trying to ask for help and how to travel back in time. Did he allegedly kill her or did his friend allegedly kill her? No, I think he, I think he allegedly. He, but he was he, hashtag he, asking for a friend? Yeah, like, yeah, basically, yeah. Mistake. Yeah, for a friend of mine kind of did a bad thing and I, yeah. I, I need to go back in time to correct it. <laughs> so, which is, uh, which is, like, look, it's a, it's a terrible story, you know. It's a terrible story because time travel is sadly not an option. Right? So he's not just a, a... He should have thought of that. Well, I mean, I'm saying I feel bad for the guy because yeah, I think uh -huh. maybe he was planning it. Maybe his plan, his murderous plans were based on the but, premise that time travel was an option. Right, I'll show maybe her. He, yeah, exactly. I'll show her and then go back in time and yeah. I'll kill her. Right. Very yeah, different, I'll very different from I'll kill her forever. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Two totally different things, which totally I hope the court things. takes into consideration. Yeah. One is a timeout. Yeah. <laughs> and one is death. Also, I mean, this is actually interesting legally. I bet like if he actually believed in time travel, 
that's probably well yeah not, but not that it's a possibility that would be really funny actually if the court if his lawyers were like well it's not a it's not a it's not an unrealistic uh, expectation given modern science my but, client over there believed yeah that believed he, yeah yeah he, he, but if he, he did believe really it it's a mens rea it's like he's probably incompetent to stand not competent to stand trial or something although they never do that because that's it's like ridiculous they always have mentally ill people even when they're like witness list includes um uh jesus christ uh pope john paul well, and that's JFK. Different. right that's different i'm just throwing in my the criticism of how that works but yeah but it is true that if he if he thought time travel was an option kind of a game changer it, it i mean i think it completely changes the the uh, the argument right about, about what the, the the legal argument of, of the murder right you know uh yeah okay sure uh -oh, premeditation this is gonna be my right premeditation time travel based premeditation is a very different thing right wait a second what? i think we have to adjust our our sentencing our charges against him he regrets it he thinks it was a mistake if he really were the time travel um believer that I was suggesting, he wouldn't have said it was a mistake. He would have been like, I did something that I would like to now undo. Can someone tell me how the time travel thing works? Because that was already in my- in Yeah, my that's, it, it, look, it, it shows that he understood right from wrong. So that kind of ruins your mental- Well, not just right from wrong, that. but like if his plan had been a timeout followed by- Oh, a, in, in other words, he, he, he felt guilty. Right, exactly. If, if he hadn't right. felt guilty because, well, why feel guilty? I'm going to bring right. you back when to you're, life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that would be, so, that would be I'm better. sorry. I, we're going to have it's to- on a scale. Our, 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 yeah. It's still, not mur it's still not the murder the way a murder is committed by someone who definitely knows that time travel doesn't exist. That's all right. I'm going to say. But I'm not going to go any further, further than that. It's a little that. bit to the side of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, what do we have for Isn't That Weird? Uh, isn't that weird if we could call up this article, please, Dan, which is in the lovely New York Post in honor of our guest. So this is New York Post. And of course, you know, great puns, pun great. warning, trigger warning, no pun intended uh, for the puns. Florida driver whips out handgun when asked about his penis size. Awesome. Uh, a, a, Key That's West, a plus headline. A plus headline, right? OK, a Key West man was so insecure about his manhood that he whipped out a gun when a motorist mocks his penis after asking why he revved his Jeep's engine, the Miami Herald reported. You must have a small D uh, uh, under, what is it, M dash? You must have a small D M dash, Dustin Allen Coons, a resident of Ramrod Key, no less. Oh my God. That is that awesome. Um, said the other driver told him during the Halloween night encounter on Duval Street. Toby Keaton of Carl Springs told police he was in his car in front of Coons's Jeep when he heard his engine revving up. So he decided to walk over and ask the driver, why he was doing that. He said Coons began swearing at him and pulled out a nine millimeter Smith and Wesson, according to the report. I flashed a gun at him, so I was protecting myself, police said Coons told them, but Keaton said he feared for his life. Coons was arrested on felony charges and aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, carrying a concealed weapon and dealing in stolen property. He told police he had bought the gun on the street. He was also slapped with a misdemeanor charge of driving without a valid license and released from Dallas for posting $32,500 bond. So, I mean, shout out. I think there, I honestly think we could have probably drawn out some more puns. I'm a little disappointed yeah, the, the, for the he, New York Post. He, 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 they, he could have, if we're driving Whipped with a flaxed license, you yeah, know, they, they, they right, could, have yeah. done, they could have gone there. I mean, yeah, or, right. a, a story like this, you really should have six or seven puns in there. I know. The other thing with that is that 
he didn't really push back on the tr on the suggestion that he was insecure. Also, but like that, it's a bit of a dick move to go up to someone. It's one thing if you're like you're in traffic with them or near traffic accident. It's a little bit too much. Like I, you know, like it's also problematic and unwoke and size shaming. I, I agree. But it's not a bit much. Like I understand if you're in a traffic, if like you're whatever, it's road rage and you say that, but you're going to go up to the guy. I mean, look, you're in Florida. There's a strong, unfortunately, a strong stand your ground um, precedent that especially works when you're um, white and not as much when you're black. Well, there's, there's also the, the that law has a uh, an exception for uh, if somebody says you have a small dick. Well, yeah, you're allowed to shoot them repeatedly as a loophole. Yeah, this this is this one isn't as bad as the as the football player. Dan, did you hear about this? The guy at the draft. If we could see the story where the uh, the the football player, a, a, a tackle, I believe, was asked by a, a team at, at the NFL draft uh, if there was anything about himself that he would change. Uh, and this video actually got out. If you can change anything about yourself, what would it be? Uh, shit. Maybe a second bigger dick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, is there someone in the National Football League? <laughs> I like that. That's honest. Uh, I think it's. I think that's an act of violence. Whoever released that tape to the media. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Anyway, that was a bad story. Also a weird story, right? All right. Well, I hope he doesn't get too stiff of a penalty. Dun -dun -dun. And if I'm glad he didn't, you know, I'm glad he didn't get sharp. I'm glad the bail wasn't too much because I, I, I worry he's hard up for cash. Oh, 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 ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. What is this, an audience or an oil painting? Tip your waitresses. Yeah, just the tip your waitresses. <laughs> I just wanted to to quickly, I think it's important to just drop into this conversation that deleted tweet from the New York Times. Yeah. So so real quick, just in terms of the election, a couple of things. First, let's let's, let's just look at the the uh, the the media face plant that was in retrospect should be pretty a good one. But Dan, let's look at the New York Times on the day of the election. So, OK, the New York Times uh, on, on the day of the election, they t they first tweeted Quote, the role of declaring the winner of a presidential election in the U.S. falls to the news media. The broadcast networks and cable news outlets have vowed to be prudent. Here's how it works. Here's how it will work. And uh, that assertion that uh, that it's the job of the news media to, to decide elections got so much flack that pretty shortly afterwards they had a correction. And it reads like this. Correction. We've deleted an earlier tweet that referred imprecisely to the role of the news media in the U.S. presidential election. The news media projects winners and reports results. It does not declare the winner of the election. So that was a yeah. uh, not not a great look uh, on, on the day of the election. And then another thing is that um, this uh, tweet from John Favreau of our enemy podcast, uh, Pies of America, and a former um, Obama guy, uh, I think really makes the case more effectively than than any of us could. For those who can't see, it's a tweet and it says, uh, do we have problems? Of course we do. Let's figure them out together in private. Right. So let's not air our dirty laundry in public. Let's pretend that everything's cool and the pe people who know better will will figure it out in private, right. which is exactly the attitude that got them in this mess in the first place, But So then Katie Bakes responds, who is the we and the us here? 
And Favreau responds, Democratic strategists and organizers, of which I am one. Great. So, um, yeah, the election, look, Biden is almost certainly going to be the winner, um, although it probably it might take longer than we think to, to make that a formal reality. But um, basically what I, the one take I think we can take away is that the Democratic Party is going to take this as a validation of, of all the tactics of the last four years, which, you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time chronicling, and, you know, that really were terribly ineffective and, and wrongheaded. They're going to prolong their own agony in terms of their future and, the, and, the, and, and their, the necessity of evolving, which I think they, they're going to de- decide they don't have to do. And, and just, 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 to, just to quickly go back and, and think about the decision-making process that got us to this point. Remember, at this stage of the year, last year, the Democrats were in the middle of arguing feverishly against um, against Elizabeth Warren, who at the time was kind of at the top of the polls. And there were all these articles about how Democratic insiders, well, she was at the top in late October. And then there were these leaks that came out of Democratic insiders saying that they're terrified of next year. And is there anybody else you know, that they could, they could get? Bloomberg, Devil Patrick, you know, right. Eric Holder. Um, and then she kind of fell off, I think, among other things, because she backed away from Medicare for all. Right. They, then they did the same thing to Bernie. And what they ended up doing was just taking away their ability to run as kind of economic populists at all, because they spent the entire primary season sabotaging any candidate who used that language. So, I, you know, even if they hadn't you know, dis- destroyed Bernie and, and, and Warren, even if they had only politely described them as legitimate contenders, they would have had something to run on over the summer. Right. Different than what they did. And, and as a result, they just left this opening that's going to stay there for years, I feel like, for the Republicans to step in there. I, I don't know. That, that, that feels like a big result of this week for me. Yeah. I mean, you can't. Yeah. Again, I don't people are seem to be totally convinced that uh, the way you fight right wing co-optation, I guess, of populism, if we're going to if we're going to to honor Thomas Frank's definition of populism um, is with like middle of the road stuff is just. Yeah. All right. Well, to uh, talk about this more uh, with us right now is uh, old friend and friend of the show, uh, Glenn Greenwald, who, of course, made a, a big high profile move recently, leaving the intercept, the uh, outlet that he co-founded years ago, six years ago, uh, and he's now set up independently on Substack. He's going to talk to us about the media and about the election results, which, of course, at this moment are not fully in, but um, he's already written some things about it online. So we'll, we'll check in with him now. Awesome. All right. We have a guest who needs uh, no introduction, friend of show, longtime friend of show, uh, Glenn Greenwald, uh, now of Substack. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about your move later. Although probably most people haven't heard of it because it didn't, it didn't make much of a stink in the news or anything like that. I know. I felt like everybody ignored it. I felt very neglected. I thought people would at least wish me well, but it was like everyone ignored it. It was like I moved and it was just completely unnoticed. It was sad. Yeah. You have to have a housewarming, a metaphorical housewarming. Something. Kick up the attention a little bit. Uh, All right, so we're talking to you, Glenn, on uh, Thursday. So that's two days after, uh, ostensibly, we should have had a new president. And um, one one of the pieces that you wrote already on Substack 
was about the uh, unreliability of the voting process. The, your, your headline is, the U.S. inability to count votes is a national disgrace and dangerous. You're, ta you're talking about some of the pronouncements made by the so-called experts at the New York Times uh, on the night of the election. What's going on with this? Because this, this was all a year. It wasn't just last night. It wasn't, it's now like a thing in this country that we expect you know, to, to take days or weeks to actually know who wins any election. Yeah, and it's really, you know, it would be one thing if it were just happening in this pandemic where you could at least justify it by saying, well, of course, there are these specific rules of how we're voting that have never been tried before. And so there's a reasonable expectation that there will be delays. The reality, though, is that this is now par for the course. I actually read an article after the 2018 midterms when there were all kinds of you know, races that were undecided days and weeks after the voting took place. There were uh, all sorts of ballots being contested, races that seemed like they were almost random because of the lack of consistent rules that were being applied to how the votes were counted. And the thing, maybe one of the reasons why it strikes me is because the country in which I live and have lived for 15 years, Brazil, is not exactly renowned for being a country of technological efficiency or systemic organization. It's pretty much the opposite. Nothing works well in Brazil. That's one of its great charms. And it's also a country that's obviously much poorer than the United States is. And yet, despite a fairly similar population size, I mean, it has like about 220 million people or so, but it ends up having a similar number of ballots because voting is mandatory. It takes place, the election does on a Sunday, so there's no conflict with any voting, uh, with any jobs rather. Uh, the voting age is 16. So I think in the 2018 presidential election, Brazil counted about 105 million ballots, which was maybe just 20 million fewer than the US counted in its 2016 presidential race. And yet the way it works is everybody goes to the, ballot, the polls all day, the polls close at six. At six o'clock, 90% of the vote total nationwide is released, not just for president, but for governor, for Congress, for the various <laughs> senators who are running as well. And you know the entire vote total, and then maybe two hours later, two and a half hours later at most, 100% of the vote totals are released and they're completely reliable. No one has any doubts about them because they're federalized and it's all done through automation. How is it possible that Brazil and countless countries in Europe can count their votes instantaneously in a way that gives every, and yet here in the US, California and so many other states, even without the pandemic, take weeks, if not months to count all the votes. It's mind boggling. It doesn't make any sense. And okay, okay, so even Iowa, which is a caucus, which has its own unique challenges because there's a pretty complicated system for determining who wins at each location. It was one thing when that took a long time to sort out because each of the counties does have its own rules. But this is- And because Pete, and Pete Buttigieg's early victory announcement uh, and uh, the shadow app. Right, yes, anyway, exactly. For this year, yeah. Right, but this isn't a caucus. This is just people basically saying yay or nay. Um, why, why does it take so long and I, I, I guess I'm struggling. What I'm, what I'm struggling with is why did it never take so long before? 
you know that that that's a question that I can't. Well, remember. I think one. I think one of the thing. Well, I think one of the things that has happened is that it does. It has been taking a really long time to get the final count, but because in prior elections the presidential race wasn't as close. I mean, it was close in a few key battleground states, but once those get counted, we don't really notice that California takes weeks or, you know, Texas or New York or other states that are purely blue or purely red are taking a long time. And there's all these disputed ballots because the race is already decided. And so nobody cares very much. It's only once, you know, there's a number of states that are closely contested and those states have problems counting, do we start to really notice? But like I said, in 2018, I don't think it got a lot of attention then. Although even in places like Georgia with Stacey Abrams, it was pretty notoriously um, run that, that election, but there were tons of other elections. I mean, Alexander Castro cortez in 2018, before she was elected, was accusing Andrew Cuomo of racist voter suppression. And throughout 2016, the Democratic primary, people forget as well that one state after the next had like people wiped off voting rolls, tons of ballots that weren't properly counted, lawsuits over whether there were shenanigans taking place. We just don't have an electoral system that's reliable. And, you know, yeah, it is true that caucuses are more difficult to count than, um, than, than primaries. And, 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 but Katie alluded to that debacle in Iowa, which I think we shouldn't rush past because, you know, that was a perfect example where these kind of like sleazy, scuzzy insiders in the Democratic Party, why, why do they need to create and sell a new app? to the Democratic Party to count votes. Counting votes is a very fucking simple task, right? You don't need a new app to do it. Um, yeah, that, and that, especially one that's never been tested. So I think that, you know, the people who benefit are people who want that wiggle room with inside the voting process. That's the only thing that makes sense. Yeah, I, mean, I do want to give it a shout out, though, for, for naming, for being called uh, Shadow. Like, they didn't even, they kind of, like, w showed instead of told, you know? Like, yeah, it was candid. Been, it was candid. Yeah, it was forthcoming. It should have been called like it could have also been called like sketch. Or yeah, or yeah, sleaze or, 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 sleaze or, or yeah, else. or like unreliable or non-transparent, yeah, yeah, yeah. opaque. That, those yeah, were all in the yeah. running, and then they settled on shadow. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but but you're right though. The it's almost by process uh, by process of elimination. The only thing that makes sense for why you would choose a more complicated and and less understandable system is to allow for some wiggle room you know and i i, that well, I mean and, 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 i i know i know that sounds conspiratorial but this is how particularly you know the party nominating process has always been done um when democrats are talking about the possibility of bernie sanders winning a plurality of votes but not a majority and trying to steal the election from him on the convention floor. I went back and read a ton of real-time reports about what happened in 1968 with Eugene McCarthy and Hubert Humphrey and that entire process. And back then, most of the states were determined by caucus precisely to deprive voters of the ability to determine the party's nominee and to make sure that it was the party bosses that decided. And of course, the kind of like iconic smoke-filled rooms was how party nominees were often chosen. And that ethos of stealing it from the voters and letting the party bosses or whoever else kind of you know, tinker with the mechanics of the voting process is very endemic to U.S. political history. It's not like it's a new conspiracy that we have to concoct to explain why this is happening. On that note, and you've already been critical of this, the, 
they did essentially have a facsimile of a smoke-filled room to decide the nominee last year, and they did it ostensibly to make sure that they not only won against Trump, but succeeded in down-ballot elections. And look what happened, actually. Do you think that there's going to be any kind of like move towards self-reflection or a reckoning or anything along those lines? Uh, the Democrats? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I I don't, um, the Democrats are going to do self-reflection? Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I mean, obviously, if the Democrats lost in 2016 to the single most unpopular presidential candidate in modern political history, who was a game show host and everything about him that we know that doesn't need to be recounted and didn't engage in self-reflection after losing, they're certainly not going to engage in self-reflection once they eked out a victory and at least control the White House, even if they don't end up controlling the Senate, which shocking is in the middle of a massive recession a job loss crisis, a crisis in foreclosures and delinquent rent payments, and a major out-of-control pandemic, the Democrats somehow figured out how they could lose seats in the House. I think they're up to having lost 10 seats, and they could lose still. There's, um, to the first point, still a number of House races that are still uncounted and undecided, which is also kind of worth noting. And you know, expressing some amazement over. So they're not going to lose their majority. They actually have a chance to, but it's a very, very, very small chance of everything breaks exactly the wrong way for them. They're not going to lose their majority, but it's going to be a substantially decreased majority. I don't think it's likely they're going to end up with us the, taking over the Senate. Um, they're going to have two runoff races in, in Georgia that will decide that. But they cert it certainly looked like they were. So absent Joe Biden barely losing instead of barely winning. It basically couldn't have been worse for the Democrats again for the second straight national election. And, you know, if you judge how the Democrats do things, it's they search around to blame everybody else but themselves. So, no, I don't think there's going to be any self-critique at all. Well, yeah, you're one of the things that they can blame and they do like to blame. You're one of the players. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, they blame the press. They blame right. foreign Russia. Right. They, they blame vote suppression. They blame, you know, everybody right. except themselves. They don't really and, have like a green card party candidate to blame this time, but they right. will find other villains, I'm sure. Also, they um, what's interesting is they talk about voter suppression and but they don't really do a lot about it. I mean, they didn't do a lot about it in the past four years. Yeah, I mean, the voter suppression tends to take place in the states controlled right. by Republicans, right? It's a Republican right. strategy to try and suppress the vote, and it's a Democratic strategy to get more votes. But, you know, I wonder now, given the, what appears to be the demographic breakdown of a lot of these key swing districts and counties, for a long time it was assumed that the more people who register, the more it benefits Democrats. But as Democrats start to become this kind of affluent party based in the suburbs of college educated and above voter base, and as the Republicans start to target working class voters more, you know, household with union members in it voted for Trump 40%. Of course, the Latino vote was much higher than the narrative suggests or people expected. Even the African-American vote appears to be higher in, in a lot of districts. Um, perhaps doubled from 2016. You know, I question whether or not that's going to continue to be um, a theory that works, namely that the more people who are registered, the more benefit it redounds to the Democrats. 
Yeah, it, it, which brings me to another question. What do you think is more likely that the Democrats don't figure out a way to correct what looks like a slide of working class voters towards the Republicans or the Republicans are too stupid to see the opportunity that has been handed to them and continue to be essentially a patrician pro pro corporate party that doesn't really offer anything to because they're, they're they're presenting what happened the other, the other night as the Republican working class party. Uh, but, you know, what, what will they actually do? Will they be able to actually do anything to turn that into a coherent political strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think parties are captive to their donor, ba donor base and their prevailing ideologies determined by that. And so the donor base of the Democratic Party and their 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 financing this cycle was shocking. I mean, in terms of like how robust it was, being able to pour two hundred millions of two hundred million dollars into two different Senate races where they never really had a chance. Just hardcore red states in Kentucky and, and South Carolina, both of which they lost, outspending Trump by huge sums in all of the key battleground states. Having Silicon Valley and Wall Street almost entirely united behind them. I think signals that the, the the base of the donor base of the Democratic Party, what finances them are these affluent suburbs and the capitalistic power centers in the United States. And so that's going to be the ideology of the Democratic Party for as long as that's true, which is neoliberalism, even more so than it was true during the Obama years, because at least then there was more of a touchstone with labor unions and the like. Now they're just all in with Wall Street, Silicon Valley and kind of the professional professional managerial class. I don't think there's much appeal anymore in Republican politics for this kind of nostalgia of Ronald Reagan and cutting tax, corporate taxes and rising tide lifts all boats and supply side economics and even, you know, these imperialistic war policies because Trump obliterated it. You know, they had a lot of candidates who were spouting those orthodoxies, beginning with Jeb Bush and the Bush family that had long represented it. Obviously, Marco Rubio as well. Um, and Trump just, you know, machine gunned through them. And I think one of the things that has not been fully appreciated is just how popular Trump remains among Republican voters. Um, you know, he ran ahead against a lot of those more traditional Republican senators in a lot of those states, not all, but, but many. Um, and, you know, I think when you look at who the kind of rising stars in the Republican Party are, like Josh Hawley, who on election night, somebody had tweeted, the future of the Republican Party is a multi-racial working class party coalition and he basically said um yeah you know like it's the most obvious thing in the world that absolutely is the only viable future of the republican party and all of their smart politicians and consultants realize that well how are they going to convert that to a reality though i mean i the if it were somebody like tucker carlson running for president which you know has been rumored in media circles for a long time um but who's going to do that articulating of that message? Uh, because a, a, a person who's well, well, but by... let's, well, let's remember, let's let's remember in 2016, Trump kind of did articulate it, particularly during sure. the era of Steve Bannon. And imagine if Steve Bannon's plan had prevailed instead of him basically being, you know, swept to the side by Jared Kushner, who's kind of a more traditional, moderate, tax-cutting Republican. If, you know, Bannon's vision was the first thing we do is we do a massive infrastructure bill with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to spend, you know, billions or trillions of dollars building roads and bridges, putting people to work, creating this air of bipartisanship. The next thing we do is we cut taxes 
on the well, we raise taxes, I mean, on the wealthy to show the working class and the middle class that we're on their side and they'll forever remember that we raise taxes on the rich. Um, and then we build the wall to say, we're, we have this amazing country bursting with jobs. Um, we're going to cut free trade. We're going to bring industry back. Um, we just cut, you know, raise taxes on the rich to fund all of this for your benefit. And now we're going to build a wall to make sure that this only redounds to the benefit of Americans. That is a very powerful economic message. It's one that Trump actually ran and won on. He didn't right. do very much of it. Right. And, you know, if you look at Josh Hawley, that's clearly what he's eyeing, along with standing up to Wall Street, standing up to big tech. Now, whether he's genuine about it, you know, people make a point that he actually did vote for the Trump tax cuts, which he did, which may have been a, a strategic calculation for how we get wins in 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 missouri um or it could just be you know that he really believes that but whatever else is true as a matter of rhetoric and branding and positioning he and i think even people like tom cotton and um sort of that younger generation of republican smarter republicans clearly are are, are abandoning the rhetoric of supply-side economics, trickle-down effect, cutting taxes on the wealthy, at least as a matter of rhetoric, if not policy. Policy, yeah. But isn't, I mean, Matt, what you're referring to, isn't that just like Thomas Frank's um, What's the Matter with Kansas combined with Listen Liberal? Like well, it's yeah, how sure. Um, it, it, it's, just, it's just, it's so clear that the, the Democrats have, um, have thrown their weight behind this new vision of the party that sort of as a union of kind of neocons and Clinton liberal, Clinton Democrats. Uh, and, you know, they've left it open, uh, an opening for the Republicans to call themselves the party of the working class against the party of the rich. I'm just, I'm just wonder if they're smart enough to take advantage of that opportunity. And if they're able to, because, you know, they're, they would have to, lose some donors to make that argument wouldn't they glenn i don't know i mean i'm not i'm not really sure at this point um you know i think that you know if you look at i mean who is the donor like if you look at like the big donors of the republican party like sheldon adelson who doesn't really care about orthodox economic policy republican economic policy he cares about foreign policy in israel um i think if you like if you're the republicans and you continue to kind of service those niche idiosyncratic issues obviously if the democrats become the party of the suburb you know the upper middle class suburbs and the affluent coasts and get their donor base from there and start embracing those people i mean if you look at trump's base who are they right they're non-college educated whites and increasingly um working class latinos um and other non-whites you know one out of every four non-white voters at least according Mm. to the exit polls yeah voted for exactly immigrants voted for for donald trump um and obviously there's a very strong latino component but not only that did it that the republicans can absolutely build on if they get behind their smart politicians as opposed to like Marco Rubio or somebody who just spouts like you wind him up and he just spouts like Reaganomics or whatever. But I think there are a lot of the smarter Republicans who see that very, very clearly, that opportunity. Hmm. Yeah. Um, also, just going back to sorry, uh, what we were saying before about the voter suppression stuff, I think that like you're obviously there's a lot of redistricting um, uh, and redrawing of, of districts under Republicans. 
but also the Dems. I mean, I think even Chuck Schumer like th threw out an idea about a bill to address voter access. Um, and, you know, which is something, again, that the Dems just have not been pursuing. They just they, they de decry it. They decry how bad it is, but they don't actually do anything about it. Kind of much, much like the way they they are are very good at uh, analyzing and acknowledging um, structural racism, but don't actually, you know, they kept they kept talking about during the DNC how disproportionately affected people of color are by COVID, and then they don't actually get behind, you know, the Medicare for all thing that would help that that would address it. Yeah, you know, well, one of the one of the funny things about RussiaGate and the whole fixation on RussiaGate is that it was all supposed to be about protecting the sanctity of our elections and fortifying voting systems to make sure that there could be no hacking. And I remember I interviewed Tulsi Gabbard in 2019 after the Mueller report came out. And she said, I've had a bill pending that I've been pushing even further in light of this Russiagate, you know, um, fixation that she never bought into, but wanted to use it to win support for this bill she had pending that was very simple to federalize the, the voting system to automate it but also have paper ballots to back it up to make sure there was no questions about the integrity of the voting and she couldn't get like any co-sponsors in the democratic party all the time that they were out there talking about protecting our voting infrastructure and all that it was just a ploy, an instrument, a weapon to bash Trump and, and, and the Republicans over the head with. They didn't have the slightest genuine interest in it, as evidenced by the fact that there was so little interest in her bill. If you cared about the integrity of the voting process, if you actually wanted to remove the ability for domestic shenanigans or foreign interference, the solution is very simple, right? Like I made a joke on Twitter the other day, the other day in Portuguese saying like Brazilians should send observers and you yeah. know teachers to the United States to teach them how to hold a free and fair election. If Brazil figured it out, if countries in Eastern and Western Europe can count their votes on the same day the voting takes place, obviously the US could do it if there was a will to do it, but there isn't. And I, do, I don't know the, the answer, right? Like you can speculate about the motives, but clearly what we know for sure is they like it this way. Do you think that, that Biden is relieved by uh, a, a Republican Senate uh, because then he doesn't have, then he has a perfect excuse for not pursuing the things that would actually be uh, what like the Bernie wing of the party is demanding? Or not even the wing of the party, the Bernie peop supporters, you know? Progressives, whatever you want to call them. Or just yeah, I saw some tweet. You know, I saw some announcement, and yeah, I, I saw some announcement. It was like the Biden campaign is saying that all these fantastic liberals they had planned on nominating to crucial cabinet positions will now probably have to give way to moderates because Mitch McConnell won't approve them. And it was like, oh, we're so sorry. We were just about to nominate like Medea Benjamin right. for Secretary of Defense, and unfortunately, against our will, we're not going to have to nominate Bill Kristol. Right. This is what yeah. they've been doing forever. You know, they were so thrilled to have Gerald Lieberman deny them the 60th vote on several things so they could always point to the inability to get past a filibuster during those first two years when the Democrats had major control of both the House and Senate under Obama. I wrote this article once. It was, I think, in 2000, before Obama. Maybe it was after Obama because I used to, I, I would, you know, when I went from 2005 to 2008 before I got into my I completely hate the Democrat stage. I used to I used to be one of those like progressive bloggers who always thought, oh, they just need more spine. Exactly. They really want to exactly, do good things, yeah. but they're just afraid. You know, that whole like Daily Co's like mythology for children. 
And I remember what, what they used to do is, you know, there'd be like some bill and I would get really excited. It would be like to ban, um, we're to guarantee habeas corpus for war on terror suspects. So they get at least one crack at a court before they're like thrown into prison for three decades. And this is something the Democrats are campaigning on and we're denouncing And Every single time there'd be a bill like that, it would always fail by two or three votes because of democratic defections, but they would always make sure that the defections rotated. So you could never focus on anyone who is terrible. They kept just rotating it. So it was like that kind of game when you're playing with a kid with you have that hammer and the things pop up and you have to smash them, but you can never actually win because they just keep popping up. Um, and I call it villain rotation. That's, you know, yeah, villain it's whack-a-mole. Rotation, yeah. They're experts at that. The Democrats are expert at denying their voters what they pretend they want to give them. Right. And then pretending that they're really upset by it. So Mitch McConnell is the perfect excuse for the Biden administration to just be as centristy and pro Wall Street and pro Silicon Valley as possible, which of course is what they'd want to do anyway. Oh yeah, I wonder if that's why Schumer was uh, so gung ho about McGrath, Amy McGrath, right? Instead of uh, uh, yeah, like right that's now. the other thing is right when you have like red state senators like Doug Jones or Joe Manchin or whoever, you know, um, it's all. Ways, yeah, we have to, John Tester, we have to protect our red state. Right. Uh, senators, it used to be the blue dogs right. when in that era when I was talking about, oh, we can't lose these like purple right. seats by going too far to the left. There's always some theory to pretend to their liberal left progressive base that they really, really, really want to do these wonderful things that's being demanded of them, and yet they just can't because right. of some pragmatic impediment. Did you have an aha moment that made you realize that, that it wasn't about spinelessness and obstructionism, but rather about what they wanted or believed in or did not believe in or did not want? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it was, you know, remember when I first started writing, it was, you know, four years after the 9-11 attack, two years after... Rock when that national security repression was very much in the air. Democrats felt very constrained. The discourse was very limiting and, 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 and repressive. And so I always thought that the Democrats were just afraid, like, and especially after John Kerry's loss in 2004. Remember, they really wanted to nominate Howard Dean. They got afraid that if they did that, they would be too part of the left and would lose to George Bush. So they nominated this like, you know, jelloey, uh, uninspiring figure in John Kerry and lost anyway. Um, so I just thought it was like a kind of fear-driven political miscalculation. And then once Obama won with this amazing mandate, he had like an army of millions of people behind him with the Obama for America, um, majorities in the House and the Senate. And, you know, the first thing they started doing was thinking about how to help Wall Street and bail out the banks um, and continue the Bush-Cheney civil liberties assault and the endless war on terror with all of the, you know, radical Article 2 theories of executive power that nobody was forcing them to do, then it just became so obviously true to me that they weren't doing these things that I was angry about because they just lacked the political will or the political courage or whatever. They were doing those things because those were the things they believed they and, and wanted to do to, to appease their, their donor base. Like when you really like look at what the Democratic Party is, it's not very hard to see once you look at it from that perspective. Right. So just to, just to switch um, if, for a few minutes uh, at the, re the remainder of this interview on uh, to subject of the of the press first, how are they going to exp how how is our mainstream media outlets going to explain 
the demographic results for Trump uh, because it, it flies in the face of years of analyses about who he is and why he's being supported. And, um, you know, are, are, is there going to be any change there in terms of understanding the phenomenon? I mean, if you really stop and think about it, it is so remarkable that one of the predominant themes of the Trump era is that Trump is not just kind of racist in like a boomer way of being racist when compared to like um, newer, more contemporary, younger generational ways of looking at race, but that he's a hardcore white supremacist, a white supremacist fascist and a white nationalist whose vision of America is one of white nationalism to uh, ensure the primacy of white people at the expense of non-whites and people of color, to remove non-whites from the society in order to make sure that whites remain a majority, to define the United States based on questions of racial purity, and that essentially it was like a fascist movement that was comparable to Nazi Germany in terms of its vision of racial purity. That was not only a common view in the media, it was the consensus. It was one that you really couldn't question or dispute except by ensuring that you yourself would be subjected to accusations of being, if not yourself a white supremacist, at least acquiescent to it or being willing to overlook the threat that it posed because you yourself are white or whatever. And the fact that there were lots of non-white people disputing that and objecting to it, of course, they got dismissed just like Bernie bros were white men even though huge numbers of people, including one of whom involved in this interview, were female supporters of Bernie Sanders, were gay supporters of Bernie Sanders, I guess two, um, were people of color, they, was, they just got disappeared. Same thing with these people who were objecting. And now you have whatever the numbers are, right? Like exit polling is preliminary. It can fluctuate some over time. It probably will. But with the exit polling that we have, but also much more convincingly, and concretely, the large number of minority majority districts, you know, heavily Hispanic districts, heavily black districts, where Donald Trump's percentage increased, often substantially as compared to 2016, there's no question that the white supremacist, white nationalist, fascist dictator, Nazi Hitler, got more non-white votes, more votes from people of color in the United States by percentage than any Republican candidate since 1960, that's 70 years ago or 60 years ago. Um, how is it that you can reconcile this narrative that was manufactured by very wealthy, privileged, um, Ivy League educated members of the national media, many of whom are African-American or Latino or LGBT or, or, or white liberals, how is it that you can reconcile the narrative that they shoved down everybody's throat about who supports Donald Trump and what the ideology of his movement is with the fact that huge numbers, huge numbers of voters who voted for him are not white or white male at all. In fact, the majority of Trump voters are either women or people of color. And the obvious answer is, is that these people in the media, white liberals, um, African-American liberals, Latino liberals, LGBT liberals, who have concocted this perspective, this theory of the Trump presidency for their own benefit, for lots of reasons, completely excludes 
what predominantly shapes people's lives and the crucial prism through which they navigate the world, which is class, socioeconomic status, and career prospects. And so you have these tiny number of people, these hyper-partisan elites, purporting to speak for an entire group of people with whom they have almost nothing in common except these kind of superficial demographics that for the people who they're fraudulently claiming to speak for is not the predominant thing at all that determines how they view themselves vis-a-vis culture or society or politics, which is why they ended up voting for Donald Trump in such large numbers. So whatever the percentage is, the percentage is infinitely higher than what this narrative would suggest it is. I think it's a major reason why the polling was so off yet again, even worse than in 2016 after there was supposed to be all this like rectification and self-reflection. And it exposes yet again, but in one of the most vivid ways yet, just how fraudulent our national media is. So just to follow up on that, because you obviously just left The Intercept and we don't have to get into this too much, but um, one of the things that both you and I have talked about is this discussion that people are having within the news media. And we've, we've both heard from people who kind of work in the business um, who they're not, they don't have Republican leanings at all, uh, but I think they, there's frustration across the board and there was leading up to this election about the inability to kind of describe what Trump's uh, support is really all about, the extent of it, you know, what, how, and what was really going on in the ground in this race. How does the business address that problem? And how, how significant do you think the problem is internally in news organizations? Because, you know, all I, all I know is anecdotally from what, of what I hear from other reporters, but I'd be interested to hear how you characterize it. Well, it's interesting because at the very same time that the media is having one debacle after the next to their credibility, from a, any reasonable perspective, like what we just discussed in terms of the expectations they created about an easy Biden victory, about a Democratic takeover of the Senate, about how non-white voters view the world, preceded by the debacle over Russiagate and so many other examples, many of which we've talked about on this show before and others. On the one hand, you have that going on, but then on the other, you have this extraordinary success that these media outlets who are leading the way, perpetrating these frauds, are experiencing. I just today, I read an article that the New York Times for the first time broke 7 million digital subscribers and now officially make more money from digital subscribers than, um, than, than you know, the paper subscribers, which have always been the foundation of, of their newspaper. The New York Times is now an incredibly profitable institution, not despite these failures, but because of them, because they're talking only to people who want to be fed democratic party propaganda and liberal ideological affirmation. MSNBC, if you go and look at their ratings in 2015 and 2016, almost every single one of their hosts was on the verge of being fired because nobody was watching their shitty dumb shows. And now, you know, because of Trump, he single-handedly saved almost all of their jobs. And you go across the spectrum to like blogs and media outlets. I mean, I know at The Intercept, you know, we had one reporter whose only purpose in life was just to write up whatever like anti-Trump agitprop materialized on Twitter. And it became one of the most read, you know, parts of what The Intercept did, even though it was incredibly superficial and shallow, it was literally just summarizing whatever the like 
you know, Trump lied in this tweet or he exaggerated, whatever, like the people, you know, in the MSNBC world were hysterical, he would write it up, but it would generate clicks. Trump salvaged this industry. And I think one of the most, you know, significant data points that we've gotten in the last three or four months about this was the Pew poll that asked, I think, thousands, if not tens of thousands of news consumers, which is your primary news source? What is the source that you look to first to get your news before all others? And of course, like people who said MSNBC, of them, 95% were Democrats, as you would expect. People who said Fox, it was like 93% Republican. So MSNBC is even more partisan than, than Fox. But for NPR, it was something like 93% said Democrats. And the most... 87, yeah. And the most amazing one was the New York Times. 91% of the people who identified the New York Times as the primary source of news are now Democrats. Like, it's always lean kind of liberal, right? It's been in the heart of New York forever. It's, you know, kind of ethos has been cosmopolitan, speaking to people in big cities. So it's never been, you know, say, continent with, like, even you know, evangelicalism or rural conservatism. But at least, like, it was kind of a trusted paper in the middle. That's gone. It's completely a partisan outlet now and is making more money than it ever made before. And of course, your book, Hate Inc., in my view, tells this story is better as well as, in fact, better than any other, which is the new model of media profitability in a world where media outlets are struggling for profitability is to just be as polarizing as possible, elevate fear and hate levels as high as you can about whoever the enemy or the villain or the other is. And then just feed people, feed into that hatred because hatred and fear are very powerful, motivating emotions to make you keep waking up and running to see what's going on, what's endangering you, what's threatening you. And so, you know, no one at the New York Times wanted to hear from a Trump supporter, which is why in the few instances where they would go and sort of like do fulfill the promise that they made when they were so wrong about 2016, they would go into some Trump community or interview, you know, Twitter would explode with indignation. Why is the New York Times talking again about her two Trump supporters? No one needs to hear from them. New York Times readers don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear from a Republican senator like Tom Cobb about what his view is. They don't want to, you know, um, hear about what Black Lives Matter and Antifa left in their wake, in the wake of those protests and riots in cities, even if they support those movements. That is the climate that has been created is news outlets that their job is to flatter and appease and vindicate the presuppositions and worldview of highly ideological, hyper-partisan actors. And beyond that, of course, the dynamic, as we all know in newsrooms, is that millennials who come from academic institutions 10 years ago and learn that anytime something is bothersome to them or that there's an opinion they dislike, they can run to, 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 to academic deans and have it, you know, kind of whisked away and not have them exposed to it. They now treat human resources that way. And lots of people have been driven out of their news outlets for the crime of offending millennials. And you have these 50-year-old editors, 55-year-old editors who know that in a profession that they've been in their whole lives, the only thing that they can do where jobs are disappearing, the last thing they want is to be accused of being a misogynist or a racist or a homophobe or a transphobe or anything else because of things that they publish by doing their jobs. And they would rather just cling to their jobs and support their family, even if it means abandoning the role of journalism as they've always conceived it. And so the pathology in newsrooms for all those reasons is intense and pervasive and I think growing rapidly 
in a way that is not going to be solved by trying to reform these institutions. They're too dependent upon this model. I think what's going to happen is new models of how to do journalism. And, you know, I was very candid about the fact that even before I left The Intercept because of that censorship episode, I was already exploring the possibility of doing that precisely because it's so obvious that that's what's missing. I think there's a lot more to be talked about with your departure from The Intercept and the role of the media. But I just wanted to kind of add in that I do think that the narrative about Trump has been overly simplistic and about his appeal. And I do think that Trump is in many ways more of a continuation than people like to admit. He is an aberration in certain ways, but also totally continuation others. But I mean, there is something, his rhetoric is openly, more openly, I would say, uh, Islamophobic and anti-Mexican than other presidents, even other Republicans whose policies are Islamophobic and racist. Um, also, I think the stand, you know, telling the Proud Boys to stand down but stand by, the like extrajudicial killing of the guy who was accused of killing, you know, the Antifa guy. In other words, I think that the the narrative has been exaggerated and oversimplified, but it's but I think that there are of course aspects of Trump being very overtly racist in ways we haven't seen before. I, I, I suppose. I mean I think that it's a pretty strong statement to say in ways we haven't seen before in a country where you don't even have to go back centuries. You go back to World War II, where Franklin Delano Roosevelt, one of sure, the most presidents, right. interned right. Japanese Americans, and imagine all the rhetoric that accompanied that, or Woodrow Wilson, who, you know, depicted anti-war as traitors, and yeah, and 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 he was, you know, an unreconstructed racist, or. You know, you even go back to the rhetoric surrounding Vietnam when Americans were saying, well, how is it that we can keep fighting in this war that seems to have no purpose? You had generals saying, oh, Orientals, the term at the time, don't really value life as much as we do. They don't really mourn their children. Um, And then, you know, yeah, Westmoreland. And then, you know, what, what, what I always go back to is, I mean, just go back like two presidents when... You know, remember, this is what got me into writing and got me to leave my career was not minor transgressions. They were things like imprisoning American citizens on U.S. soil with no charges or trial, like was done to Jose Badia. Or, you know, like an island prison where people were put, they're still there with no trial or kidnapping people off the street. Right. You know, and so... It's just very difficult for me to see what Donald Trump has done that is in some alternative universe, some like, you know, different universe of amorality. Yes, he is like behaviorally different than what we've expected, come to expect. But I actually think it's beneficial because it kind of prevents people from being deceived and deluded about kind of like what you were saying before of calling that app you know, shadow brokers or whatever, that's kind of the same tonic as I see Donald Trump being. It it gives the face of what American imperialism and the prison state and everything else, the reality of what it is. It takes the mask off, right? I also think, I mean, just just to look at the reaction to what happened with this election, if if Donald Trump were actually like a Klansman or, you know, a burgeoning Hitler, the way he's been presented in in the news media for the last four years, People would be dancing in the streets right now, and every single editorial would be about, boy, we really dodged a bullet. And, and yet most of the reaction is, wow, what a dis- disappointing down-ballot performance by, by the Democrats. It, it's just, I don't think anybody really believed that he, he was Hitler or, or a, a real white supremacist. I just, I just don't. Well, I think he, that. but he, I, well, I mean, I, I think he, he pays lips, he pays lip service. I mean, 
his he when he said there are good people on both sides with Charlottesville, I think, you know, he doesn't like in the past, he hasn't renounced denounced or he's been resistant or slow to denounce, you know, the endorsement of certain white supremacists. I don't think he's necessarily that idea, that on an ideological uh, level, but he's, I think, you know, op- totally fine with dog whistling. And again, I do think it's important to recognize that that I mean, I, I feel like just like I was saying, he's both a con- continuation and unprecedented, definitely unprecedented in aesthetic and behaviorally, like you said, Glenn. Um, and I think that there's often a f- over over um, emphasis on discourse and not enough analysis of policy. But I do also think that discourse does create something. So. I mean, we, for sure, I, I, for yeah. sure. Like it, it inspires people, right? It, yeah. Like it gives people signals and licenses, right. a license about what they're permitted to do. I just, you know, go back to like Ronald Reagan, who, you know, we have airports named after. And when he was running, like the staple of his rhetoric was the reason welfare the United queens. States doesn't have better things. Yeah, it's like welfare queens driving right. around in Cadillacs. Who was right. that like supposed to evoke? Sure, of course. Um, and obviously, you know, Lee Atwater on his deathbed admitting that the entire Republican Party was based on not very subtle appeals to racism, especially to convert the South. You know, so I just think we need to be careful not to be a historical in terms of how we view Trump, you know, I think, I mean, look, I, you know, I lived in New York before I lived in Brazil for 15 years where Trump, you know, was a very towering figure and things like calling on the five African-Americans to in the Central Park case, who were innocent to be given the death. I mean, he's always been like a racial arsonist. I'm not doubting that. Um, I just think in terms of like what he actually did as president, but also in terms of his comparison to prior presidents, what seems different to me is just the fact that he's not very well trained about how to speak in presidential jargon. And that makes us all feel like he's kind of different and out of the realm of normalcy when he's just really not. If you look at like the reality of, of our history and, and what he did in office, but I understand, you know, those examples. Right. Um, and I also, you know, wonder- but I think that, that he's just not very adept. Right. I mean, I also I, I think that one other thing that I would also just say is that while obviously FDR did intern um, Japanese Americans and, um, you know, there was a lot of racist language, I do think like if you count for like chron- chronology inflation, they're like he's more out of step or more. Oh, again, not even policy wise, but his rhetoric is no, no, no. But I'm I'm acknowledging that I'm focusing on on rhetoric and discourse. And I'm focusing on that because I feel this is a safe space because I don't have to convince. I'm often focusing on the policy stuff, but I because I'm arguing with people who do say that he's like, um, you know, a, a totally unprecedented and total aberration. But I'm just saying that I do think that, you know, we sh- we can look at that. We can look at the policy. We can look at how people are refusing to acknowledge that he's a continuation and also acknowledge that saying Mexicans are rapists or saying that they're good people on both sides in the 20, you know, 2016, 2020 is, is not the time-based parallel of some of the other examples. I mean, obviously I wrote a lot about Trump's uh, appealing to the, the worst instincts of voters right. you know, before two, 2016. And he definitely, you know, his, his language with the beautiful white suburbs and all that this this time around. Um, I, I, but I, I just think the, the caricature that we ended up getting was of a white supremacist movement, which was so wildly inaccurate that it led to this, what, what I think we saw this week was, which was a spe- spectacular journalistic failure 
to be to see this coming so i don't know there's yeah i mean and, and i think but, but, i do also it, think it, the overemphasis it, on it, this it, exonerates it, democrats too like i do think i i think the overemphasis on this is a way to not deal with more like the class-based issues the structural issues the fact that the dems don't have something to like i mean it looks like biden will eke it out but the fact that it was so close on uh, when we have a president who said it's not just like we can say and surmise and read between the lines or argue ourselves, but that he himself said that he downplayed COVID is obviously speaks to an abject failure of the Democrats. And I do think that the overemphasis or the kind of tunnel vision that about talking about Trump's discourse to the exclusion of other things is obviously a dangerous thing, too. So I agree, obviously, on that level. Yeah. I think, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of how deranged the rhetoric has been over the last four years. Um, like the critique you, Katie, are voicing, I think is a reasonable one that can be engaged, right? Like, was Trump aberrational? Did he kind of stray beyond the lines? Especially if you account for, you know, the evolution of thought and, and that's those. Are, but like, we got to the point where, and I don't mean like random people. I mean, like, you could find this in major newspapers and, and, and TV shows where Trump was basically Hitler in 1938, you know, when people claiming he was going to, in the second term, literally build camps, not, you know, for immigrants trying illegally to enter the country, but for citizens who were yeah. critical of him or whatever, just the craziest stuff, um, which I think just like the fixation on Russiagate had the effect of obscuring right. what yeah. Trump actually did that was damaging, whether it's undoing all kinds of regulations or, right. you know, Upward favoring tax cuts. Uh, industries that had done all of those. Yeah. All those other things. And I, I think that um, it's really unhealthy to have a media outlet that's feeding a population that trusts it. This extreme form of neurosis, you know, like everywhere I go and every conversation in which I participate, you find people scared to death that their physical safety is going to be endangered. I think those people, meaning people who are really engaged with the news too much, I think ordinary people didn't feel those dangers, which is why they turned out in larger numbers for Trump than people expected, because they look around and they just don't see those threats in reality. Yeah, and, and also the unbelievable ability of these people to focus on Russiagate, but not on you know bombing Syria for instance, uh, or, you know, whenever it's like Ronnie Kallick says the, uh, the liberals hate, tr uh, Trump except the days on the days that he's bombing countries. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I also think Russiagate, whether it's Russiagate or the white supremacy argument or whatever, or whatever it was like, we just entered a period where people in the press became afraid not to signal every time they mentioned Trump that they believed, you know, nine required things right and that that became part of what what made it difficult for people in the media to work during this period like every every time we talk about this guy we got to say x y and z uh and i that, i don't know how you feel glenn but i think that contributed to the kind of misread of what happened this week but i, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on how uh, things could be fixed yeah, I mean, well, first of all, you know, I think that one of the things that happens, and ironically, the person who wrote the book that I thought best described this process was Chris Hayes in 2011 when he was still a weekend host at MSNBC, and he wrote a book called Twilight of the Elites, and he had several chapters, as I recall, at least one for sure, 
that describe cognitive capture, where the more you engage with or immerse yourself in elite institutions, inevitably, the more you're going to be co-opted by the way they see the world. So even if you start off kind of like cynically talking about Trump as Hitler because you think it'll help turn out the Democratic Party vote, or you think it'll help your clout, or you're afraid of your career if you don't, all things that are probably true, eventually you actually start believing it because the people that you're talking to are also now saying it and eventually you just keep saying it and saying it and saying it and the people you're talking to are saying it and you don't have anyone on to dispute it or dissent from it, which was true for so many of these media outlets. And then therefore you start believing it. And I think that, you know, for people who aren't in those elite institutions, who aren't subject to what Chris very aptly described as cognitive capture, the conversation that the elite national press was having about the country was so wildly disparate from the perceptions that people have. There's this huge cleavage. And then the other problem that starts happening, you know, because like this idea, for example, that Trump is this fascist, he's a, you know, Hitler figure. One of the things that's so offensive about it is that the people who were saying it at the beginning clearly didn't believe it, right? Like every year, Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff while they were saying it, were voting with the Republicans, Trump's party, to increase the military budget that Trump would control, to increase the amount of domestic spying powers Trump had, to block reforms that were being proposed. And then it, obviously, if, if, if Hitler were in power, you wouldn't be voting to give him more money for his military or more, more spying powers to exercise domestically. You would be hitting the panic button if not fleeing the country. And the fact that nobody was doing that made it so clear that they didn't really mean what they're saying. And when you keep making it clear that you don't really mean what you're saying, or that what you're saying is so wildly removed from the reality as people experience it, of course they're going to stop listening to you. They're going to tune you out. And so when the question becomes, well, what is needed, as Matt asked, to like reform the media and to restore trust, I think it's so simple. You know, I've had this experience so many times in the last two years where something happens, like Trump gets COVID, and... Or, you know, allegations now that like there are irregularities in the vote counting on both sides. I don't have very many news sources that I feel like I can go read or listen to or watch and trust that what I'm hearing is their best attempt to figure out the world as best as they can. I feel like what I'll be hearing is what they know their audience of hyper-partisan readers or listeners want to hear or what you have to say in order to avoid making them angry and keep them subscribing and, and not turning the channel. And that is so dangerous. So I think anybody who figures out, you know, like we talked before on this show, on your show, why I go on Tucker Carlson, um, you know, I think that anybody who figures out how to communicate with different ideological factions without pretending that you agree with them, still being very clear that you have strong convictions that are different than theirs, not pretending that you're like, you know, kind of like David Broder or that like above it all voice from nowhere because no one trusts that either. That's just as much bullshit. But, you know, you say, look, I have very strong views, political agenda items, things I believe in that are different than yours. But at the same time, I'm not going to sacrifice that my, my ability to describe the world as best I can factually at the altar of my ideology. If you can convince people, not in one camp or the other, but across those camps, that you're somebody they can trust. And if you can create a new outlet, which is what kind of the, you know, objective was that, that I was pursuing and still am, 
that can command that kind of confidence in people that look, you're not gonna get everything right. And I know you're still subjective. We're all subjective. We're still gonna see things in a distorted way. But I know that you're gonna be trying your best at least. And you're not gonna care about angering this camp or that. Um, I think that's what's gonna be, that's really gonna resonate resonate, and, re, and, and restore trust and faith that for good, good reason, um, the media has lost. I also think it's such an uh, like outrage that people focus on individuals going on Fox News without wondering why it is that that's that you are invited there and not on MSNBC and not on CNN if you want to do anything ranging from you know be skeptical of, of RussiaGate but also like of of war. I mean, you know, we've seen Aaron Mate go on Tucker Carlson to talk about Syria. Aaron Mate also like addressed the UN. He can speak at the UN about this, but he can't get on MSNBC or CNN. And, um, you know, I, I do think that if, if Democrats and elite media cared about winning and reaching people, they would be, um, first of all, they'd have people on their shows, but also that, you know, you want to reach, Fo this is the thing that I don't get, you want to reach Fox News viewers. And, you know, you're less famous than Tucker Carlson. So the, the narrative about you amplifying him doesn't is not true because he's amplifying you look at it look at it from the look at it from the other perspective instead of like why does this leftist or that or i or whoever go on fox news look at it from the perspective of them so let's say you have like a cable show at night like a primetime cable show like your lawrence o'donnell or anderson cooper or you know like rachel maddow or whoever and you know it's like a pretty good platform you reach like a few million people you don't reach as many as like wrestling or like uh you know various cartoons or whatever on cable like or reality shows like about housewives but like you're reaching a few million people you can get senators to come on and like answer your questions as long as they're in the party that your network represents why if you have like a storyline that you're propagating like russiagate or that trump is a you know grave threat to all, or all these you know things that we cherish and and like why would you not want to have somebody on to challenge that so that you can engage in it and if you're right it'll you'll come out stronger your viewers will be more interested um you know i think matt said that he was the last russiagate skeptic journalist to be on msnbc and he was on in january of 2017 january, so the entire trump presidency four years on msnbc talking about russiagate every day never having anyone on to even question the premises of it. I was on like one month before Matt, and that was the last time in December of 2016, when I was on with Ari Melber to essentially say like, hey, I kind of just feel like as journalists, we probably shouldn't take the word of the CIA when they say stuff like we should need evidence for it. Um, that was the last time I was on, talking about Russia, Russian involvement and collusion with Trump. Um, I just think that what that reflects is that they're not trying to have informed discussions. They're not trying to have an interesting show. Um, they're trying to keep their platform worth paying them millions of dollars a year and getting them on as kind of like C-list celebrities on like late night talk shows or whatever. Um, and those temptations, as Chris described in his book, are so powerful that you'll essentially adapt to whatever you need to adapt yourself to in order to maintain and preserve them for yourself, for your family, for your self-esteem, for your, the mortgage on your second house in the Hamptons, whatever it is, those are really powerful uh, 
temptations and lures that that weigh on all of us as human beings and it's hard to resist once you take the plunge i want to talk about the article that got you that basically or um elicited the response that made you pull the trigger and actually leave the intercept right um something i find interesting is that it seems to me the the problem people had is precisely what you're saying that they had which is that it was close to an election and people didn't want to publish something that was uh, critical of Biden that would potentially help Trump, that Trump camp obviously wanted to be discussed by the media. Um, and the problem is no one would say that. So they tried, they pretended that there was some ethical reason or journalistic reason that it was inappropriate for you to publish that piece. I'm curious what you think of the argument about like, do you think, would it be okay if people were just honest about why they didn't think you should be writing that piece? It was so obvious. You know, it was the funny thing is about that article was there was nothing in that article that would have swayed a single vote, I don't think. It wasn't like, you know, when I set out to do it, I wanted to like see if I could get non you know emails that hadn't yet been published to do some original reporting and actually it was matt who a few days before i started working on my article or as i was working on it published an article that really kind of zeroed in on one of the points i wanted to focus on which is the idea that the media had created a false narrative about why joe biden wanted that ukrainian prosecutor um fired uh victor shokin because According to the media narrative that emerged to protect Biden, there were no investigations of Burisma, the company employing Hunter Biden. And so firing that special prosecutor could not possibly have benefited that company. If anything, it could have harmed them because they replaced him with a much more aggressive and vigilant anti-corruption crusader. And the whole thing was utter bullshit. That was the exact opposite of reality. And Matt did original reporting, someone who's lived in the region, who has sources in the region. And I told my the editor-in-chief of The Intercept, as we were going back and forth, that one of the things that amazes me is that I know for a fact that the article that Matt wrote, as well-sourced as it was, with as much original reporting, as much competence as he has to report on that region, would never, ever have seen the light of day at The Intercept. And if an article, you know, written by and reported on one of by one of the left's most, you know, accomplished and popular and... Uh, credentialed and successful journalists can no longer be published at the intercept because of the they weren't afraid that it was going to tilt the election they were afraid mm, that people right. would accuse them of having done so which is even worse than that kind of fear you know I think like a week before as well um, the great you know author and uh, advocate of Palestinian rights Norman Finkelstein wrote a article that he submitted for freelance review about why Facebook was wrong to ban Holocaust denialism on the grounds that as right. a child of Holocaust survivors, it'd be better to air those views. Exactly what The Intercept was created to air, you know, like dissenting controversial views that most other places would be afraid to publish by a left-wing voice who's often marginalized but shouldn't be. It's like right at the sweet spot right. of what we should be. And he didn't even get an answer because The Intercept was not interested any longer in, in publishing that they were interested in kind of what we were talking about before, serving the presuppositions of its, of its audience and, and of other colleagues. And so it wasn't just this last incident, it was just kind of the last final straw for me. Right. Because, and I don't want to zero in on the intercept, it's not like there were unique problems going right. on there, it just had become part of these broader media diseases that we spent a good amount of our time today talking about. It's like the woman who resigned from MSNBC 
and she was saying this isn't like it's not unique to MSNBC. It's just that she works there, and uh, I think she worked for Lawrence. But and and why did they? What's also weird is that they wouldn't let you publish it elsewhere. Well, in their defense, obviously, if as you know, right. one of the faces of the Intercept as the co-founder, if I had gone under these circumstances and published it with Matt at the Nation, wherever, yeah, um, the Daily Caller, the New York Post people would have asked why and it would have been very obvious right. that the yeah. reason was because they had prevented me from publishing it and the way they would have even looked worse for them had other places deemed it editorial editorially um you know sufficient and solid and they didn't it would have even been clear and would have created a controversy for that reason so i think they wanted to pro- avoid that and i think they just assumed that because my salary was so high because I do need very expensive 24 around the clock security that they provide because I need very good criminal lawyers in Brazil because of the still pending criminal prosecution that the Bolsonaro government is pursuing against me that I couldn't afford to leave, that I just never would have left and would have just swallowed what they did. I think that was their working assumption. And so preventing me from going somewhere else was also about making sure that they didn't look like they were trying to censor me when clearly they were. Yeah. Well, it didn't work. So, uh, and we're we're happy for you that you found a new home and uh, <laughs> you're do, doing great stuff. And th- thanks so much for coming on. Yes, thank you, Glenn. This. It's always great to be with you guys. Good to see Me you. Too. Thank you. Right. Thanks. Take care. Bye, John. So that was a great interview. Um, you know, uh, I, we, we got to we got to get that huge cleavage part and oh yeah, and, and make it viral. Yeah. Yeah. yeah make it. Um, and also, I just want to give a shout out to you and Glenn being called grifters for writing at Substack and having like crowdsourced uh, media, which is just like the most, I think, seeing people from the New York Times make that argument is just like so gross. Um, the term grifter has absolutely lost all meaning. No one, the only thing you have to be to be a grifter is you have to have a perspective that's outside of, um, you know, the orthodoxy. And uh, try to maybe make money not at a at an institutional outlet. Um, and the idea that that is somehow less worthy of an endeavor than being at the New York Times or Washington Post, or that like many people have that option. I mean, it's just so incredibly elitist, and there's yeah. no awareness of it. Well, uh, my retort to that would be. Okay, so well, what I'm doing and what Glenn's doing is a grift, but uh, is it a grift to work at a nonprofit news organization owned by a billionaire and write once a month and get paid hundreds of thousands, uh, hundreds right. of thousands of dollars to write articles that nobody reads? Right. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Like, if at least at least with what I'm doing and with what what uh, Glenn's doing, uh, people don't read. We don't get paid. You know. Uh, so I, I think that's, that, that, that it's not just about me and Glenn though. That term yeah, has sure. come, has come into prominence on, on yeah. Twitter. It's become a thing that they use to, to describe basically anybody who has a different idea about all sorts of things, because it's, it's assumed that the only thing, only reasons that you could possibly have for disagreeing on a host of issues are it's you're either insane you're a right winger or you're up to something for money right it's all about clicks or money and you know again like the idea it's like people get paid other places it's not like employed journalists and reporters are are not getting paid they're just getting paid by a different uh venue 
They're not getting paid by readers. I mean, this is much more democratized. Um, Yeah, I just think it's a ridiculous claim and no one, and it's a way to like not engage in a substantive argument or critique, which I think, I mean, people should feel free to do that, but it's just, yeah, they don't, they can't, they won't. So um, I'm sorry to interrupt it. Just, it's it's, it's funny because I think one of the things that, that Glenn is arguing most strenuously is that we, you, you ha- you can't fall into the the pattern of only playing to one audience. So you have to challenge your audience constantly. And the one thing that we know about media is, is that when you challenge your audience, you, you lose you lose clicks or you lose you lose market share. Right. right? So what what he's basically saying is, yeah, I'm going to move to this new model of of journalism and it's you know it's entirely possible that he'll make a good deal of money doing that because he's got a lot of followers and a lot of subscribers sure, right but the the type of media that he's talking about practicing guarantees that there's kind of a ceiling on how much you can right yeah you can get right Un- yeah. unless unless there are more people out there who want to read that that who, yeah yeah you know what i mean and i mean I would, it, yeah the Sorry. you know the joe rogan experience you know suggests that there is a big audience right. out there for but right know. but and also it's just ironic because i've seen intercept people like talk shit about him as a grifter while they in like the same tweet ask they're like here's where you can donate yeah you can venmo me here yeah, yeah. or i mean venmo me or think it to be fair it's more like donate to the intercept right oh i see okay yeah, well, yeah that's what people have been doing so it's institutional grift as opposed to individual i guess yeah, I've um, seen both things. But... Oh, really? You've seen both? Mm-hmm. Wow, I didn't know about that. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. even more. That's just like blatant. Griftopia. Yeah, it's a little bit of Griftopia. But uh, but he seems happy, so good for he him. Does seem and, happy, and yeah. he, he, he's also, of course, he's always happy to be in the middle of a, of a giant media. I know, yeah, he is, is yeah. So he's Which is a... great, and, and that doesn't mean, I mean, I think a lot of people use that to, like, try to discredit him or make it so that it's not really about what it's about or what he's claiming it's about. And it can be both things. He can have a healthy appetite um, or bigger appetite than most, I'd say, for controversy um, and also be making important arguments or doing important things. And, exactly. you know, he did help free Lula, by the way, NBD. Lula's basically out of jail because of him. And he lives under a much more fascistic leader than than Trump. Right. Uh, like Bolsonaro is absolutely like much more authoritarian, was in the military dictatorship, praises former people who tortured people, said more people should have been killed than just tortured. Tried to actually put Glenn himself in jail. So Yeah, you know, right. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that was a good, great talk. Uh, thanks for uh, tuning in and uh, rate and review us. And, yeah, rate and review us and order and get some mugs. Um, rate review, you just rate and review. You write some positive. You give us a bunch of stars. Four or up, minimum four. Um, and also uh, subscribe. And to subscribe, guys, you hit subscribe and then you ring the bell. All right, on that note, thanks for tuning into the Useful Idiots and we'll, we'll see you next week. I'm Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.